but I'm just imagining him and his wife signing the marriage certificate and he does like this beautiful signature and then she breaks up a pack of crayons. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast created by the Jack's Way Collective. We're a group of friends who like to talk about philosophy, fiction, and whatever else is on our minds. Thank you very much for listening. Now let's get to the show. Uh, well, thank you everyone for joining us today. We are here recording our monumental episode 10 of the podcast. Um, and to celebrate, we're actually going to do our second first ever guest episode. Um, so today we welcome Sarah Johnson to the podcast. Uh, she has a BA in English and works alongside Brendan and I. We are discussing a story brought to us by Sarah called The Fall of the House of Usher by um, Edgar Allan Poe. And so with all our guests, we put them on the spot. Um, you bring us a story, tell us a little bit about uh, why you chose the story, and just give us a brief summary as well. Okay, well, fun background, how I picked this story. I was away for the weekend in a cabin in the woods, how spooky, and it was like 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning. I couldn't sleep, not because I was like worried about picking the story for this podcast, but just because <laughs> like that's naturally, you know, what you do in a cabin in the woods. And I was like, oh my God, Edgar Allan Poe perfect Halloween just like all the elements that you want so that's how I landed on that so this will be our official Halloween episode for the podcast the story itself was spooky as fuck the podcast itself will be completely PG so go I to the side you just said fuck and you're like yeah it's PG <laughs> if you're gonna say it's PG you can't say fuck one or the other yeah you know what you're right we have earned our explicit rating on iTunes so let's keep it <laughs> Did you not get that just from the get-go? No, actually, it doesn't start until episode seven, six or seven. There's um, a quota on F-bombs. You got to hit. <laughs> I noticed it's on Spotify as well. We're explicit. We're technically explicit. God, we are See, fucking awful. See, I only like to do content that's rated E for everyone, so I don't know if this can continue. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we brought you on to clean up, clean up the podcast. Okay. Fall of the House of Usher, our unnamed narrator is plunked into this creepy, gloomy, dark, oppressive, and a thousand other adjective setting. He is going to visit his childhood friend who is in a bad way, not doing too hot, physically or mentally it sounds like, gets to his house slash mansion. It is creepy as fuck. There is one of the fucks that we can use towards our quota. <laughs> Gets there. There's a couple of other unnamed characters. He meets a doctor who's like kind of sinister looking. I think there's a valet that helps him in with his bags. Goes directly to see his friend. He's actually really hospitable and cheerful considering how down and out he is. And then, yeah, creepy shit goes down in the House of Usher. So I think that one of the most interesting things that you can bring to the podcast, Sarah, is specifically your, your BA in English. And so we want to put that to use. My parents would and... be thrilled. <laughs> Finally, um, I'm still waiting for the chance to put my degree to use, but you know, <laughs> here's your opportunity after however many years. One of the things that I'm very interested in, and I think that you know, when we do short stories on the podcast, we can talk a lot about content of the stories, but there are a couple of things that you uniquely are able to bring to us. One is like the actual form of the writing, which I want to get to maybe a little bit later, but the other is... Um, just understanding kind of literary movements more broadly, um, and uh, in the case of this story, specifically Gothic literature. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about 
where this story fits in gothic literature and maybe a little bit more about the genre as a whole? Sure. Well, gothic literature is actually like super interesting just because it doesn't really fit into a specific period. Everybody knows like, you know, there's medieval literature or renaissance or the romantic period, the Victorian period. Gothic kind of like transcends all of them. You can find gothic literature almost anywhere. It kind of starts or coincides, I guess, with the romantic era. All art or like all literature is usually reactionary. So the romantics, that was kind of a reaction to the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, what was going on there. Was the story written? This story is written in 1839. So actually, this was during what we would call the Victorian Gothic phase, which is kind of the end of the first movement of Gothic literature, let's say. Because we have a lot of things that predate that. You know, Frankenstein came out many years before that. The Monk by Matthew Lewis, which is a creepy as fuck book, which... If anybody is interested in this genre as a whole, I definitely recommend that you check that out because it has everything you want and more from like cannibalism to incest to satanic priests. It's wild. This genre is wild, y'all. Okay, well, I'm glad we're easing our way into it. That sounds like a fucking nightmare. (laughs) I know. You had me me at satanic, whatever that was. Oh, wait. So, like, it went incest, cannibalism, and satanic priest. She didn't have you until the very end. You're like, incest, meh, cannibalism, whatever. (laughs) Satanic priest. Now we're getting somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So, actually, like, by the time Pope came along, there was some criticism at that point that the genre was becoming too like formulaic or pulpy, I guess, which sure, maybe, but now in hindsight, like there are still great works that came after that, like Dracula or Rebecca. I don't know. Like I said, like there's not one specific period of Gothic literature. You can find it throughout and it's all in reaction to what was going on at the time. So circling back to like the enlightenment and the industrial revolution, the romantics come along, say, you know what? fuck your steel, fuck your coal, and like, fuck your enlightenment and your reasoning. Like, we want to talk about nature and the sublime. And the Gothic kind of takes that as well, but turns it on its head. Like, okay, but we want to talk about nature as well, but we want to talk about the more grotesque aspects of it. Follow-up question then. In terms of Edgar Allan Poe, is this a kind of marquee standout story for him? Is this one of his kind of stories that's on the back burner. I have never read any Edgar Allan Poe. I'm not, I can't really speak for Brendan or Oliver, but this is my first exposure to him as an author. Where does this specific story stand in his kind of bibliography of work? Um, This is actually one of the more popular ones for sure. I'd say this, The Telltale Heart, The Black Cat, this story, maybe some of his poetry are definitely standouts in his discography. Yeah. Okay. Um, Let's let's now kind of maybe open it up into a broader discussion. Where do you guys want to start? Any kind of opening points from either of you, Oliver or Brennan? Uh, I feel like a good starting point is really going into how much he personifies the house to the point where I found that the house was almost inseparable from the individual. I felt like there was um, there was a lot of early descriptors, which were of course very human in nature. Uh, like he describes the eyes like windows, something as simple like that draws the immediate comparison. But as the piece continues, what I found to be uh, disorientating in an extremely effective way, in a conceptual way, was the way that the descriptors bounced back and forth, such that the decay 
and the um, like the loss of mental soundness was something that felt applicable to both the house itself and the individual, which is Roderick Usher. Um, well, setting is a huge part of Gothic literature. Like I say, setting is one of the like main main things. The stories usually always have ruins, castles, some kind of decay. So I think that yeah, this definitely right away you're put into this story, dropped in. And the setting is just so, like, in your face. But it's kind of unsettling almost because other than that, you don't know where exactly you are and you don't know when you are. One of the things that I found interesting, and I don't know if there's anything to that or to this, but it seemed like the way that he was describing the the house itself um, at the beginning of the story, he says he's looking into a tarn. I didn't know what a tarn was, but I looked it up and it's actually a, a lake. So, so much of the description of the house when the story starts is actually him describing the house of Usher as he sees it in its reflection. And because of that, the things he talks about in terms of setting are much more abstract. The wording is even a bit more complicated. There's less concrete descriptions of the house itself. But then you notice uh, when he looks up and he looks at the house itself, he goes then to describing much more concrete aspects of that setting. He specifically starts talking about the ways that the the walls are decaying or the specific plants on the, or the siding of the house is starting to fall off. And I don't know if there's anything to this, but I thought it was interesting um, nonetheless. This also kind of ties back to something that Sarah mentioned involving the use of nature because there was such an emphasis on uh, the surrounding nature unifying the house and the individuals inside of it and to the point where the nature was, seemed like a very concrete part of the house itself, like the fungus and the foliage that was growing on the sides uh, was, very much, um, was very much like an essential quality of the house. And I think that it also speaks a bit more to the, the very close ties that the individual usher in the story as a human being has to this house in this natural environment around him. Like these two things are not um, very easy to distinguish from each other. Um, they're very closely tied. Yeah, isn't that like a play on words, the title, House of Usher? It's his body almost. Like or the story is about his decay of his mind, his house. Or am I mm -hmm. just like reading way too deep into the title? Well, there's also the no, fact no. that House of Usher can be like house being the family of Usher. Mm -hmm, the lineage. No. And that's also kind of on its last legs here as like the family has pretty much all died off and we are experiencing that fall. What about like um, at the beginning, um, the narrator is so terrified or he's um, the house causes such a big sense of insufferable gloom for him. Like why? That part really threw me off as well because there was even though like it had a very ominous description to it, there didn't seem to be anything about the house itself that was um, that upsetting. Uh, and beyond that, I found like the whole nature of the narrator being in that situation to be kind of questionable uh, in itself because there's not much reasoning for him to be in that situation. We don't really understand why he would go to such lengths uh, to meet up with this friend from his boyhood that he did not keep in touch with and now presented uh, in the situation where he's going to be meeting him again 
maybe this insufferable gloom is coming from the person that he's seeing as much as the house itself. Yeah, well, as I kind of mentioned in, I think, the notes that I wrote, I love kind of how the house is allegorized as mental illness. Like, you feel this oppression and you feel this gloom when you see the house because that is what Roderick, Roderick Usher, is reflecting back through it. That's a, I think that's a great point. And to speak to kind of what both you're saying, both of you are saying, even the narrator himself acknowledges the fact that there is nothing specific and concrete about the house that ought to freak him out or ought to give him this gloomy, oppressive feeling because he even describes how every sort of item or every sort of thing in his uh, vision he had already been exposed to in his youth. There's a specific quote where he says, this is page three, I had been accustomed from my infancy while I hesitated not to acknowledge how familiar was all this. Just to add to what you're saying, the house itself is not enough to give this gloomy feeling. There's something else here. And I think that you guys are both hitting on it. Brendan, when you say the gloominess and the impressive feeling that the narrator has is due to his actual visit with Usher, the human being that's adding to this. And then um, what you're saying, Sarah, the gloominess comes from this kind of mental illness that he has to face as well. Yeah, like again, I think on page three, there's another quote a wild inconsistency between its still perfect adaptation of parts and the crumbling condition of the individual stones. So someone, you know, with mental illness can look perfectly healthy and fine on the outside, but on the inside, they're crumbling. Just like poor Roderick. Yeah, what exactly is wrong with him? It's interesting because at this point, there wasn't a ton of study into mental illness, but I think... Now, looking back, we can definitely say that he's for sure a hypochondriac, and he has that weird sensory deprivation thing, which I know is a real disease. I just don't know the name of it. And even the sister, like Madeline's condition, there's a name for that as well now, where she just like has fits and it seems like she's dead. Cataleptic, a medical condition characterized by a trance or a seizure with a loss of sensation and consciousness accompanied by rigidity of the body. It's a great point. And so as we continue to talk about uh, the disease, one of the questions I have for the three of you guys is uh, like since the, the what the disease is and the mental illness is, is, is underexplained and left somewhat ambiguous, the, some of the concrete facts that we know are it seems like one, he was not born with this mental illness. This is something he has developed um, over time. Let me know if you disagree with that. Two, I'm just curious how much of this mental illness and how much of its onset is due to some sort of neurological thing that's happening in his brain, how much of it is just purely a biological uh, misfire, and how much of it is a product of the environment that Usher finds himself in. The reason that I ask this is that at one point in the story, I got the sense that it seemed like the narrator was starting to get affected with some of the same symptoms that Usher was as well. Uh, I thought at least like maybe some of this mental illness is just due to uh, the environment that Usher finds himself living in. But what do you guys think of that? I agree. I think I read something earlier that was really interesting that in a way, Roderick, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way because my entire lineage was sickly um, we have this curse and I too am also sick. And like, well, that's also a lot what hypochondria is. <laughs> I think I'm right. sick, therefore I am. 
to kind of continue on that point and Yana's point, um, I think this is where the lack of separation between the physical House of Usher and the metaphorical House of Usher comes to an important uh, stand because not only would it be the environment that's affecting the narrator, but it would be in being proximity to Usher himself, as well as um, add to this allegory of like the history of this man affecting his current state and the lineage affecting him, which could be taken in a biological sense of carrying like the demons of your path of like um, your past heritage a biological, physical, psychological trait that's carried down, or just um, like a learned psychological uh, fracturing. Yeah, so of course, with anything like this, it's always a mixture of both. Let's maybe talk a little bit more about what happens kind of after everything is set up. Let's start talking a little bit about the actual um, happenings of this story once the two are living together. One of the things that I thought was interesting was on first read-through, you find that the sister of Usher has died um, pretty much as soon as the narrator arrives. And Usher starts to become very protective of her body. On first read-through, I thought that, like, wow, this is a great bond between brother and sister. It's no wonder that Usher is feeling so much mental illness because he loves his sister so deeply and he has just lost her. He doesn't want any professionals or doctors to touch her body at all. He wants to bury her himself. I'm like, okay, first read through, this is a great story about, although this guy might be extremely mentally ill, he really does care about his sister. Later on, you find that they're twins. And then at the end of the story, that totally goes off the fucking rails, right? And so <laughs> He cares when about I, his sister by locking in her in a um, cellar? Exactly. And so like when I go back and read the story for a second time, and I now read those same descriptions of why brother wants to keep sister's body in the house and how deeply like he is affected by her death, I just see it in a totally different way. And so um, kudos to Edgar Allan Poe at the very least. I love it when a story is you, you learn new things and you see things in a new light um, on subsequent read-throughs. Um, and I really, really felt that with this story. I was creeped out by the sister right away. I'm like, does he care for her in like a regular sibling way or like a Jamie Cersei Lannister way? Incest is such a hallmark of gothic literature. I was I was getting that exact same feeling where I was like, okay, why does he care this much about his sister? It's a little bit uh, a little bit freaky. Is that where the whole um, him not wanting the doctors to run tests on her dead body is that where that kind of ties in the incest part or could we tie that together or no the incest part i think is kind of inferred yana had highlighted it there's one quote i think on page two talking about how the entire family lay in the direct line of descent so they don't there's no branches of the family tree so to speak they're all (laughs) oh right right breeding together and not you know branching out literally <laughs> and to add to that nature metaphor they wanna, he wants to keep her buried in the house of roderick keep her in the house of roderick keep the whole family in the house of roderick like if we want to really go with that analogy of the house of roderick being the familial house of roderick then yeah like keeping her within it and keeping all of the family members within it feels extremely incestuous Ew, yucky and the narrator <laughs> The narrator helps uh, Usher put the nails in the coffin. 
Seriously. When, um, when we said this was going to be a Halloween episode, people should have known we were going to talk about scary topics. We just didn't know that scary topic was going to be incest. Boo, <laughs> incest. I don't know what it is about twins, but they always freak me the fuck out. And they always, I don't know. They're not unnatural, but they are irregular. <laughs> Whoa, watch it. You're going to, like, scare away our Twins viewership. I know. I was totally on board. Dude, it's a huge demographic for us. Come on, Sarah. Sorry. To all the Twins listening, I'm really sorry. You guys get such a bad rap in literature and movies. But, you know, there's something unique about Twins. By the way, I really liked your We just assume science. you guys are, uh, you know, sleeping together. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what portion of our audience has just cut off from uh, from the podcast, but <laughs> we're sorry to see you go. Um, Sarah, I hope that you your wide blog base brings in more listeners than you have uh, now shunned from the podcast. <laughs> so we'll see you when we look at the metrics. But, oh, man. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in the burial, um, the burial of the body after she dies. I have no firm interpretation here in like how in, how much intention was behind these two specifically Usher burying her alive, it seems like. Is this a complete accident, or does he know something wasn't here? That just like a, wasn't he crazy at that point in the story? And he was just like, let's do it. Yeah, and so I'm just trying to, like, how much of this decision to bury his sister can be chalked up to pure negligence, and how much can be chalked up to, like, actual ill intent? Sidebar, mm. I did not know what a Don John keep was, so I definitely had to Google that. And then when I found out it was like an old timey prison, I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> not Fun, only gross and terrifying. Not paradigm. only am I burying my twin sister alive, but I'm also going to keep her in an old dungeon as well. <laughs> That's now masquerading as the family tomb. How poetic. Did he mean to did he did they mean to bury her alive or not? Do they no, do they deserve I don't any think she, was she was dead. Because of her cataleptic condition. I think they genuinely thought that she was dead because you go super rigid um, for all intents and purposes. You look like you are truly dead. But then I thought she was dead. Or yeah, she so wasn't. wait, is she buried alive or is she, there's some sort of supernatural <laughs> coming back to life here? How much of this story is supernatural? How much is like, I don't know, I have many questions with the burial. I guess it's a matter of interpretation. But. There had to be some supernatural element. I thought she like, was alive. They, they locked her in, and then all of a sudden she shows up at the door. She's like her managing to free herself is supernatural. Um, she was uh, like a Houdini yeah, back yeah. then. <laughs> Such a uh, female role model for modern day magicians. <laughs> yeah, so I guess like at the end of the day, there's some supernatural stuff going on here. I just like can we bl- can we place any blame at all on these guys for for causing harm to to this woman? I don't know. Yes, no. Come on. I think you can blame the narrator. If the narrator was sane and he just let all this stuff happen and he ran away at the end. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of wipes his hands clean, doesn't he? Okay. So I guess I'm now, I'm just, I'm very interested in like what the hell happens at the end of the story. Um, Clearly we're a little bit divided. I thought she was buried alive. I guess she just comes out of fucking nowhere and shows up at the end of the story here. I thought she was buried alive as well, but then... I guess now just doing a quick perusal of the ending, how what's happening with her coincides so perfectly with the story that the narrator is reading to Usher. And you're like, okay, maybe something supernatural is going on there. Because how could those two events tie in so perfectly if it was just a simple case of her 
being like, I'm going to get out of this coffin. Also, also the fact that like she collapses on Roderick Usher and then he collapses implying that they, they both died. And at that moment, the house like splits open and this bright light shines through like all of that coincides at the same time. How does this story fit into what actually happens at the ending? The story of Mad Trist. What do we know about this story? Is this a real story? Because it seems like these, the story that he's reading and what's happening in the House of Usher are kind of running in parallel with each other. And I just wish that I knew a bit more about the story. I've found a quote here. The story features numerous allusions to other works of literature, including the poems The Haunted Palace and Mad Trist by Sir Lancelot Canning, Poe composed them himself, then fictitiously attributed them to other sources. Both poems parallel and thus predict the plotline of the fall of the House of Usher. Actually, yeah, that other poem that's included in here was published separately, The Haunted Palace. That's, right, the poem in the middle of the story. Yeah, right. In the Greenest of Our Valleys, which was actually rather upbeat. Yeah, my poor brain just shuts down when I read a piece of poetry. I just want to <laughs> Um, well, it's so but, different, like, literally all the adjectives that Poe uses, dull, dark, soundless, oppressive, alone, dreary, insufferable, gloom, and then we have this poem, greenest of valleys, fair, stately, radiant, it's quite the contrast. Yeah, you're totally right, and I will say, what an interesting concept as a writer to, like, make up your own fiction and then reference it in your own fiction well done hats off just from a purely like writing standpoint i thought that was like looking back at it it's, it's kind of brilliant i imagine poe just laughing like chuckling away like as he's writing <laughs> so i'm clever. so fucking brilliant look at me oh my god well he actually didn't have a ton to laugh about so he probably needed to get them where he could <laughs> <laughs> okay well that was a hint tell us a little bit more about poe's life and how it relates to the gothic style I just have a couple of anecdotes, but it is quite depressing. So he was born in Boston. Um, he didn't really know either of his parents. His dad left when he was quite young, and then his mom died of tuberculosis. So I'm not sure if he was then an orphan or went to go live with another family member. You had then... me at Boston. That's depressing enough. <laughs> <laughs> is that part of the sad? Great. So now Factor we're discriminating one. against twins and people from Boston. <laughs> I, although I do hear that Boston there's has one, the dopest tea or party. There's two listeners out there that are incredibly disappointed right now. <laughs> no, three, because it's a set of twins. <laughs> set of twins from Boston? <laughs> nah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and then he meets his wife, who he marries when she's 13. That's a... Whoa. I know. But she also dies of tuberculosis. That's what you get when you marry a teenager. I guess so. <laughs> Bad things are going to happen to you. Oh. Yeah, but the bad thing happened to her, not to him. But I guess it also oh. happened to him, too, because his death was quite mysterious. Ooh. He, did he die of consumption? No. tuberculosis um, or what? I was just reading this brief bio. His final days remained somewhat of a mystery. Poe left Richmond, Virginia, and was supposedly on his way to Philadelphia. He was then found in Baltimore in great distress. He was taken to hospital where he died four days later and his last words were allegedly lord help my poor soul um at the time it was said that poe died of congestion of the brain but who knows what that means some people think that um he was an alcoholic that's maybe why he died 
Maybe he had rabies. Maybe he had epilepsy, carbon monoxide poisoning. These are all the theories, Jesus. but like nobody actually knows how he died. So yeah, creepy. I'm sorry. Poe died in a very Poe way. I'm trying to like be really attentive to like this whole biography. I'm just imagining him and his wife signing the marriage certificate, and he does like this beautiful signature, and then she breaks like, a, a pack of crayons. When <laughs> <laughs> oh. she's thirteen, their colored pencils come on. Oh, sorry, watercolors. Oh dear. He well, was 24. That's, yeah, that's gross. He was 24 when he died. Oh, no, okay, when okay. he married his wife. <laughs> what else do we want to talk about? What the hell happens at the end here? Like, does she kill the brother? Does she just fall on the brother? Is it clear what happens? Um, when he runs away um, from the house, it seems like it just kind of falls over uh, or a fissure kind of makes the house collapse. Final question. There's one line which seems very out of place, but it says, the entire orb of the satellite burst at once upon <laughs> my sight. That seems like so tonally off from everything else he's written up until this point. What the fuck is the orb of the satellite? Sounds like a sci-fi. I just I imagine like the editor accidentally copied and pasted some sort of like sci-fi story in this one. <laughs> it like literally sticks out to me as like totally out of place here. That was a lot of questions. Feel free to take any one of them. I don't no, I don't get it either, because at some point earlier when the storm is happening and Roderick bursts into the narrator's room, there's talks of something glowing on the lake, but there's no moonlight. It's some kind of gas that's causing that. So maybe that is related to the orb of the satellite, but also no fucking clue. I feel like we're not supposed to entirely understand what is happening at the end. It's meant to be this grand anomaly that ties into the themes of fatalism. The whole text seems weighted down by this inevitability of fracturing and death. Like, even in the moments of brightness, it's so solemn in tone that you can't help but feel you're being guided on a track towards this inevitable destination of some sort of catastrophe at the end and in all of the occurrences that are happening it just devolves into this pure absurdity of uh, this sister coming back and ultimately killing Roderick at least in my opinion killing Roderick the family falling through their heritage dying in that moment the house falling like in this mental illness um, it just, you can't help but feel that as the individual devolves into this uh, lack of sanity, the house is also being fractured and falling apart as well. So in those closing moments, as things finally fall into that uh, inevitable descent, everything just kind of climaxes in this cataclysm. Just to add to that sense of fatalism, um, the only character in the story that seems like a kind of beacon of hope um, against this, um, and as some sort of means of escape from this fatalism, even he falls into horse. this. <laughs> <laughs> he was a good one. <laughs> Who seems like didn't stick around when the narrator runs away from the house. So I'm not sure how good of a horse he was, but, um, now the horse people don't like even the narrator's either. horse. Um, what was I going to say? Narrator. Narrator is our only beacon of hope. At least it seems like. He is the same, the one maintaining his level of sanity. He says, the more bitterly I did perceive the futility of all attempt at cheering a mind from which darkness 
as an inherent positive quality poured forth upon all objects of the moral and physical universe. So you see him using that same sort of inevitable fatalistic language after having spent X amount of time in this environment. Even he who was brought in to fix the problem and to pull um, Usher out of this condition, even he has fallen into uh, the same mentality. It's interesting that you, you're using the terminology of like saving and kind of like lifting him out of it because I ultimately couldn't really understand what Roderick's endgame was in inviting the narrator. I feel like it was almost disguised as like this healing process. But for me, it almost felt like he just wanted companionship as he was approaching his end time. I don't know. I guess I keep wanting to think, can I put any ulterior motives on Usher at all? Like, is he bringing him in to help him bury the body? Maybe help him kill his sister? But it seems like there's nothing there. And like, why would he stick around so long as well? He genuinely thinks he can help, but then he can't do fucking anything. <laughs> Maybe it's part sympathy, part pity. Yeah, and I guess um, some sort of sense of duty to see it through to the end. Although he's certainly abandoned that um, <laughs> at the end of the story. Well, I didn't get this from the text at all, but I, when I was doing some research on it, some people seem to imply that he was trapped in the house and that he couldn't leave until whatever was being fulfilled, I guess, Roderick's death and the sisters. Are there clues within the story that indicate that he was trapped? No, but yeah, that's what I was saying. I, I couldn't see anything like in the actual text itself, but some critics have suggested that. But then why does he feel this sense of duty to remain there when it's clearly a fucking crypt? Is there any way that we can take a theme in the story and tie it to some sort of real world context? Tying back into the theme of mental illness, I definitely feel like we all have these situations in life when we're growing up and we have a friend who's going through a difficult time or may actually be suffering from a mental illness. And in choosing to be around them, it has the effect on us, much like um, at one point in time, the narrator was feeling like he was devolving into uh, some kind of mental illness at the same time. But I think the difficulty and like the little glimmers of light and hope that we see in the narrator is meant to reflect uh, the individual who is close in proximity to those going through that exact same situation. And um, it's kind of sad that the story has such a depressing ending with everything falling apart. Poe seemed like a pretty sad dude, so that makes sense. I'd rather see that theme approached with optimism, but... It definitely seems to speak volumes to the nature of being close to people who are going through some sort of mental suffering or affliction. The narrator here is not physically trapped inside of the house in any way. It kind of goes back to that. He is almost trapped by his sense of duty to his friend. Once you see your old friend in the state that he is in, no matter how bad your life may be or how shitty the circumstance you find yourself in, I really think that your relationship with your friend overrides that, especially it's at least the narrator suggests that they were very close. And so although he's not trapped in this house in any, any physical way, when he sees his friend uh, experiences mental illness, it's, it's almost no, no question that you have to stay by his side, even to the very end. Plus, Usher was a uh, sweet improviser on the guitar, so... Uh, actually, it's interesting you bring up the music. Um, it seems like Usher seems to be at his most vivid and his most lucid and speaks most truthfully when 
he's engaging in some sort of art form. He seems to open up quite a bit to the narrator when he is strumming that guitar. And um, another example is at the end of the story when the narrator starts talking about Mad Trist. It is only then that he kind of has this lucid moment where he's like, oh no, I feel this guilt. This is, I've been hearing this voice for days. Being exposed to art seems to bring out some sort of lucidity in Usher's condition. I thought that was just interesting. And it's interesting how that kind of compares to the modern age as well, because we see a lot of respected, revered artists who have some kind of mental, I don't want to say mental illness, is, there's a strong implication there, but at least some sort of individualistic <laughs> mental disorder. Like, not all artists are extremely sound individuals. In fact, some of the best ones are people who have a few screws loose to st steal a bit of an idiom there. Yeah, well, for better, for worse. Yeah, and I feel like there's something about mental affliction that makes the expression of something in abstract forms much more heightened because they can't really communicate things in a sound, literal sense. So to go to the abstract forms gives them a much clearer sense of communication. And... I mean, maybe to go back to like the very beginning, when you are afflicted with some sort of mental illness, you are no longer bound by certain things that the quote unquote mentally healthy person is bound by. That being, you know, maybe rationality, for example. Um, when you are freed from such a restriction, you can engage in all sorts of alternative forms of expression. And so that can lead to much more interesting forms of art. And so like to have mental illness might be much more difficult in terms of operating in society, but it can be, you know, maybe this is romanticizing it a little bit, but it can at least free your mind from some of the shackles that um, the rest of us are bound by. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can engage um, in incest. <laughs> Man, guys, um, I really thought this was okay. going to be the first episode I was comfortable sending to my mom. Aww. Nope. It was the Halloween episode. I really thought this was going to be the one. Are you trying to tell us something about your incest? Or... <laughs> Just kidding. Anything, any final thoughts, um, thoughts on the story, anything you want to add, anything that's on your mind, speak now. Do you think we talked about enough scary stuff? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that's my answer. Just throw a couple of those in there and then <laughs> you get another take of that, Jonathan. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs>